So uh, imagine getting a letter from someone whom you deeply respect. Maybe that's a, a politician uh, or a respected mentor or an admired celebrity, if, if there are those. Uh, whoever leaps to your mind, he or she has written to encourage you about a challenging issue you might face right now. And, and these words of encouragement are, are so meaningful in this case uh, because someone who carries some sort of authority in your eyes has spoken into your situation, to the things you face. It's specific. And over time, that letter remains special because it addressed your specific Situation. Its significance is not that someone of importance wrote random words in which anyone can find any meaning they like, but in that this person spoke to your issue. Its lasting relevance is how it encouraged you with, not with ever changing meaning, but with fixed meaning, a message of hope about your trouble. And sometimes we forget that Scripture does not deliver ever-changing messages for our fluctuating situations, but is God's once and for all inspired word that carries a definitive message shaped by the original circumstances that God addressed. Now, there may be a a host of new applications that we make from Scripture for how to use that definitive message. But nonetheless, we must trust that even when we do not see how the the biblical teaching uh, directly affects what we do day to day, God still knew best. God still knew best in giving his inspired word that teaches exactly what his people always need. And so the main point today is that scripture's authority is expressed in the once for all revealed message about the gospel. Scripture's authority is expressed in the once for all revealed message about the gospel. And we're going to think about this in two points today, the setting and the salutation. So first, let's let's think about the setting because we're starting a new series as we dive into the book of Galatians and we need to get a handle on what's going on. What is this book about? Where, where and when did it take place? That sort of thing. And so this point is aimed at putting Galatians in its biblical framework by showing where it fits in Paul's ministry as recorded in the book of Acts. And so what I want to show, where where I want to get, is that Galatians fits right there at the beginning of Acts 15, at the end of Paul's first missionary journey, just before the Jerusalem Council took place, that settled the issues about what the gospel is, that Paul addresses in this letter. Now, we'll, we'll come back to that in 
explain it, but that's, that's where we're going in this point. I don't usually spend as much time on introduction at the start of a series, but, but the reason for this is that Galatians actually includes far more autobiographical detail than most of Paul's other letters. So Galatians 1 and 2 is largely, as we've already gotten a glimpse, Paul's defense of his apostleship, in which he recounted his conversion and also his call to ministry and various steps in it. And so, uh, if, if the, the whole text is there, right? The, the focus is really the first five verses where we'll get, but there's a few points along the way that I just want to note for us and then draw some significance. So, in Galatians 1, 14 to 17, Paul described his conversion, which is noted for us in Acts 8 and 9. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he then said that after three years in Arabia, after he was converted, he spent three years in Arabia, then he went to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, or, or, or Peter, uh, and James. Now some of these texts, so if, if if you have your order of service, some of these texts from Acts are, are printed there for you. If uh, If not and you have your own Bible with you, you may want to flip to the book of Acts just to get an idea of the scope of what we're doing here. So Acts 9, 26 to 31, ties in to that exact event in Galatians 1. It records that visit for us. And afterwards, Paul returned to his hometown of Tarsus, which is in the region noted in Galatians 1, or the province of Syria and Cilicia. Galatians 1.21. Paul ministered then in Tarsus, but the most remembered parts of his ministry had not yet begun. That started when Barnabas collected him from Tarsus to induct him into wider ministry across the world. And so Galatians 2, 1 and 2, notes how 14 years after his Paul went to Jerusalem again, with Barnabas because of a revelation, which is interesting. Acts eleven twenty-five to 30 shows Barnabas collect Paul from Tarsus and take him to Antioch. And in Antioch, a guy named Agabus prophesied about coming famine, which prompted this church to send support to Jerusalem. Now, Here's the thing, Agabus' prophecy was that revelation that Paul noted, sent him to Jerusalem for the second time. And this trip was about financial care. And so Paul noted in Galatians 2.10 about this trip that the Jerusalem apostles emphasized, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing eager to do. In Acts 12.25, Barnabas and Paul left Jerusalem and began their first missionary journey, taking the gospel uh, into Galatia. Galatia is not a city, but a region. So it's kind of like the Midlands or the Lake District or something like that. It's a Roman province. And, and in Acts 13 and 14, Paul and Barnabas planted churches in Antioch of Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, which are all cities in the Galatian, were all cities in the Galatian province. Now, 
In each of those cities, they face some sort of persecution or attempt to stone them, which explains why Paul said later in Galatians 4 that he came to the Galatians because of some bodily ailment, right? Possibly some injury caused by these attempts to harm him that prompted him on to new cities. So Galatians is a province containing these cities, which is why in Galatians 1-2, Paul addressed the churches in Galatia. He wrote to an organized region of congregations, the presbytery. The churches were connected enough to address as one body like our presbyteries. It's worth noting, I think, just in passing, that we didn't invent Presbyterianism, but find it in the Scripture. Paul left Galatia in Acts 15, 1 and 2. Men came from Jerusalem, arguing that salvation requires circumcision. And that easily went slightly further from where he was in Antioch into Galatia. And so Paul described this same error from Jerusalem, Galatians 2.12. The problem, Acts 15.2, sparked no small dissension and prompted Paul to go to the Jerusalem, to Jerusalem for the Jerusalem council. And so as he went to attend the first general assembly, he wrote back to the presbytery. So he wrote this letter to address this circumcision issue which is so prominent in this letter. And since these events took place right after he left Galatia, right? That's why he lamented, 1-6, that they so quickly abandoned the gospel, namely right after he left. So, so, Galatians is Paul's very first letter, predated in the New Testament, likely only by the book of James. If you remember... Way back years ago, when we worked through First and Second Thessalonians, I said those may be the first letters Paul wrote, depending on what you make of Galatia. I'm telling you now, uh, we should make of Galatia that Galatians that it's the first one. But why does this matter? That's where we've all gotten right now after this long story. Why is it significant? to note all of this background as we start this series. And the reason is, I don't expect you to keep up with the details, but they're there in the text. And the reason it's significant to think about these is that it shows that Scripture is grounded in time and place. But God addressed His people about concrete issues that afflicted specific churches with specific needs. And further, that specificity behind why God inspired the Bible sets the Scripture's meaning, right? which is about biblical authority. Because often today, people want to appeal to some, you know, the broad understanding of our interpretation. And really what's going on is undermining that the Bible is clear and relevant today because we could interpret it any way which we want. There are things 
There are things we have to explain in Scripture, but not because Scripture does not have inherent meaning. Quite the contrary. Precisely because Scripture has original authoritative meaning grounded in specific events and backgrounds, that's why sometimes we have to do some work to explain it. Right? By, by way of application here, and I think that this is pointed and, and actually important, when we do Bible study, when we read the Scripture ourselves, when we're in group settings even, we, we don't ask the question, what does this mean to me? Or, what is God saying to me today? Right? We, we don't want to allegorize the Bible as if we can find some secret meaning that's there today that wasn't there yesterday. We're not postmoderns as if the scripture changes its meaning depending on the reader. And so the application of the question that we ask when we consider God's word is, what does the text mean? We work to understand why God inspired this text in the first place because God's message, God's intended message is forever relevant as such. God w- God will not say anything through his word other than what he said when he inspired There may be fresh applications, and we ought to think about how to use a passage. But we also must recognize that fresh application, fresh use in the modern context, is not the built-in reason that God inspired these texts. Rather, God inspired them to preserve the original message that as such is the same message we need today. We just finished Jude, right? And the letter was about, the, the central exhortation was about contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If we're contending for the thing that was once for all delivered, The scripture is clear. We don't need something new. We need these once for all inspired deposits of the faith as they stand and for what they have always taught. Maybe your reaction is that we have to have something that's significant in our personal lives, right? I sympathize to you, but but new application has to be grounded in, drawn from the the scriptures once for all delivered message, which does not change. We, We cannot let our desire for advice for our personal lives drive how we treat the Bible's meaning. 
And, and that, that issue spotlights how, how we are not God. And so we don't get to decide what's relevant. We don't get to dictate to God what makes His Word relevant, significant, or what it must accomplish to be important. God inspired the Scriptures to a specific situation and built fixed meaning into it because of that. We do not get to tell God that His Word is relevant only if it shows us something that we determine to be useful for the things that we care about. He is God. His Word is authoritative, and so it decides what is relevant for us, and God knows best what His people need. And so... Listening to God's word for what it has always said, only then to live in light of that fixed message is part of our sanctification. Sometimes we have to learn, sometimes we have to grow in submitting ourselves to scripture, trusting that even though this doesn't seem like the thing I need today as I go into my day ahead, God knew what is best when he inspired his word. And he can use it and will use it. And so the the setting of Galatians shows us that the text of Scripture is continuously authoritative in its original meaning. And now, now, though, having considered the background, the setting, let's think about this salutation at the beginning of this letter. And we're thinking about verses 1 to 5 here. And as we consider Paul's greeting in Galatians, the same point comes out of these verses. As we look at verses 1 to 5, the emphasis here is still on our main point that the Scripture's original, once-for-all message is the authoritative message that remains relevant today. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Paul highlighted the origin of his apostleship, and by implication, the origin of his message, his gospel. This letter's first section, kind of chapters 1 and 2 roughly, defends Paul's apostolic authority. And this this first statement introduces that defense. Paul was an apostle, not because a human person had elected him to the office, nor because a human had sent him to the task. Rather, the triune God made Paul an apostle. And there's two points to note from that. And the first is simply the Trinitarian nature of this commission. Paul indicates Christ's deity. Did you pick that up? When, when he said a human 
A, a man has not appointed him an apostle, but Jesus Christ. So Christ isn't a human person, but a divine person who jointly with God the Father called Paul to ministry. The Son of God who assumed a human nature called Paul to his task. Now second, I just, I, th- I think it's always important to note these, these sort of big theological things that are usually here at the beginning, but, but more relevantly, the second thing for our main issue concerning scripture's authority. If, if Paul's apostleship is, is not of human origin, but divine, then the same applies to his message. Paul did not invent a message and, and sign God's name to it, but delivered what he had received from the Lord. His message is authoritative as it stands because it came from God who has all authority. But, but verse 2 says more to that point. And all the, so he, you know, He's, he's listened, he's listing who sent it. Paul, an apostle, long description. Paul, an apostle, and all the brothers who are with me. All the brothers who are with Paul have sent this letter with him. Paul was not by himself in this letter's teaching. He, he wrote the apostolic message with the other church leaders. And that is a crucial point that calls us to realize that the gospel and the properly preached message is not a matter of individualistic understanding. The faith, the faith, as we heard in Jude, is delivered by God through the apostles and is understood by the church. Paul wanted the Galatians to know that he was an apostle with a divine message, but he stood with the whole church concerning how God's people understand that gospel. And our application is that is the same. Christianity is not an individualistic religion. We we cannot fully understand our faith as in the faith or its implications for our lives without the body of Christ. We can apply uh, that specifically both to belief and to practice. And so, doctrinally, we understand the meaning of Scripture together as the church. There's no me and my Bible Christianity. That's why I so often appeal to the creeds and Reformed confessions, right? That the church together has interpreted the Bible's teaching together and summarized our common understanding 
of the Scripture's authoritative message in these documents, handing it down for the next generation. Practically, though, as Paul says in Galatians 6.2, we must bear one another's burdens in the Christian life. We are not supposed to figure things out by ourselves. Christianity is not about going it alone. And this is so important because I think often when we face major decisions, perhaps especially when we sense that our preferred option isn't truly the best decision uh, in, in the set of options, but that's the one we want, when we face major decisions, and especially with that caveat, we retreat into ourselves or push ahead without bringing other Christians on board to give us advice. But the church isn't simply a collection of individuals. It's the body of Christ. And we are supposed to grow together. And so, most specifically, if we're thinking about how do we make use of the Bible, if it's not generating some new meaning every day, for me, since God does not change the Scripture's meaning to to give new words about my personal life directly to me, well, this means that we we gain wisdom. I think this is so crucial. So please play it. Yeah, if, you, if you've zoned out, this is the moment. Because I'm going to give you advice for your personal life. This means we gain wisdom, not through hidden meaning in the text that we find find by ourselves, but by leaning on other Christians as we consider the Word of God together and its implications for us. God's not going to shock you with new revelation about what to do today. But He's given you the people of God who have experience and who have read the Bible and have considered its implications and its meaning in a far-ranging way. And that's a resource for us as Christians to be in the body of Christ. And that's frustrating because actually it's more exciting if new meaning zaps me from the text. But it's more reliable to depend on the, the people who have experienced life as a Christian, reading God's Word, speaking into your life, It's not as exciting, but I don't, yeah. When the scripture exhorts us to live quiet and godly lives, I don't know that it meant find the exciting thing. And so we listen to one another. Christians, how do we live this out? Let others bear your burdens. Galatians 6.2, look for ways On the other hand, on the other side of that, look for ways to come alongside others when perhaps they need your wisdom. But also be open to how others may be able 
to make that valuable contribution to your situation. And in, in verses three to, so, yeah, I've pointed out the significance ahead of time, but in verses three to five, Paul states why that original meaning of his apostolic message is relevant then and now. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just as Paul's description of his apostleship signaled his forthcoming defense of his apostleship, so again he introduces his next main point uh, in the theme of chapters 3 to 6, that Christ has freed us from the curse of the law. Defense of his apostleship, freedom from the law's curse. Those are the two main things that happen in this book, and they're built in right here. As uh, six, chapter 6, verse 15 says, not circumcision, but the new creation matters. And it is because Christ gave himself for our sins that we are freed from the present evil age, making us new creations. The once-for-all message of Scripture, not a new meaning for today and, and how to live our lives better, but the definitive message of God's inspired word is relevant then and now because this message frees us from the power of the present evil age. This message frees us. Any advice I could give you about how to do your job better, about how to put up with your kids more, or how to enjoy your holidays better, does not free you from the curse of the law. You don't want to hear that from me. You want to hear about freedom. Christ gave himself to the cross because that obedience, according to the will of God, was the mission that the Father had given him that overturns the power of this present evil age. The Galatians had distorted the Christian life, as we will see, by putting themselves back under the condemnation that comes with trying to earn God's favor by the Mosaic Law. Right? We think that's foolish. I know, because why does blended cotton... Or shellfish. Why, why would anybody try to use that stuff? Or circumcision. Why would we try to use these things to gain God's favor? To pry that favor from His hands? But how often do we do the same thing when we think that the Christian life and God's favor upon us is about how well we do at work, carry out our duties at home, or fill our time with the right activities? We fall into the same trap of relocating ourselves from the overwhelming grace of God back under another law of our own invention. Our inclination is to try to work ourselves into God's favor. And we push and push and push and strive and run ourselves bare 
trying to deserve God's love. But, but, the unchanging message of the gospel is that Christ has not called us to work our way into his favor, but offers us the blessings of his death and resurrection to be received by faith. And so maybe the the new application here is simply that rather than circumcision and, and aspects of the Mosaic law, we think that success at our modern days of life determines our standing before God. But the enduring point is that God's abiding word announces the message of Christ who frees us despite our failure to measure up. The scripture does not have newly relevant meaning today because God delivered his definitive message once and for all. His word is authoritative because the same thing he said to the Galatians is the same thing he says to us today. Christ is the one who gave himself for our sins. To endure the just penalty for our sin as he died in our place. And so too, just as Christ rose from the grave and overcame the power even of death, so his resurrection life flows to us by faith so that we are no longer enslaved to the present evil age. And the same message is one worth hearing again and again and again. Let's pray. Father God, it is difficult to live as pilgrims in this age. We know our home is elsewhere and with you. And so we do indeed long for direction. We, we have a compass, the scripture of where to go in life, and yet we so often wish we had the GPS, what to do today. But you and your infinite knowledge have given us all that we need in the scripture as it addressed the issue of 2,000 years ago and before, and that remains relevant and binding because it is about you and what you have done. We do ask that you help us to live in light of that. But we ask also that you would help us to see that the unchanging gospel, that definitive message of Christ and his work, is more important than the advice we might need here and now. So we pray we find our comfort there. We pray that you, we help, that you help us recognize your faithfulness and reliability because of that message that does not change, that is ever constant, 
and promises grace to those who belong to you. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen.